On Sunday mornings, uh, if you've been with us recently, um, we've been working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter uh, that he wrote to the church at Ephesus, the letter of Ephesians. And Ephesians, we've said this a couple of weeks ago, we said, is about how life received from God necessarily leads to a transformed life with and before God. And in particular, Paul shows us that this transformed life with and before God is lived out in God's new society, um, in the church. And so we're going to begin talking about the church this morning from this passage that's printed in your bulletin, which is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So let me read this passage for us, and then we'll pray and get to talking about it. So listen to God's holy and inerrant word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, Have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now in prayer. Gracious Father, um, would you again be kind and merciful and good to us um, in that you would Pour out your spirit in order that we might understand your word, in order that it might be applied to us, in order that with eyes of faith we might um, behold our risen Lord and Savior Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Later on in the book of Ephesians, in in chapter 5, Paul will talk about marriage, and he'll quote a famous um, text in the Bible about marriage, which comes from Genesis, the same uh, famous text that Jesus would quote when he spoke about marriage, Um, and it's just this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The moment a man and woman make their vows of commitment to one another, they are declared husband and wife. 
they are declared in that moment one flesh. If you've been to a wedding recently, um, you might remember hearing the minister say something like, and now by the authority committed unto me as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I now declare that so-and-so are husband and wife. And then sometimes the minister will follow it up by saying, whom therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They are declared to be joined together, to be one, to be husband and wife. But here's the thing. And you've either known this from personal experience, or you've witnessed this in your friends, or maybe your parents. Um, Any couple who's been married more than five minutes, um, it's really hard to live out that reality. Uh, And live up to what you're declared to be already. Right? We... (laughs) We can barely get on the same page when we take a three-hour road trip about where to stop to eat. I mean, much less be one in every area of our life. But that's what we are. That's who we are. We'll talk more about marriage um, when we get there in, in several weeks. But my point is just to say that it takes a lot of striving. And you need certain resources to move towards living out what you already are, what you've been declared to be. And here's what Paul is saying about the church, God's new society, or or really God's new humanity. Um, He's saying that in the world as we know it, one of humanity's biggest problems has always been getting along with each other. And living in peace and unity with people who are very, very different from you. In fact, it's really hard to read Ephesians 2 without thinking about the current political discourse in America surrounding the building of literal border walls. And I have no interest in speaking to that today, let me tell you this. And just forewarn you, I... After church, if you want to tell me your views, I'm really not interested in hearing your views about that. Um, But um, listen, there's nothing new under the sun, as the author of Ecclesiastes put it. Um, it, You know, the news headline every day for thousands of years has basically been this. Nobody can get along with anybody. The world Paul was writing into was every bit as divided as our world is. Along the lines of race and nationality and class and ideology and and politics and culture and on and on. And yet, Paul claims in verse 14 that Jesus came to create one new man. That he came to declare peace in verse 17. And Paul is telling us in this passage, in the church, we have a resource that actually enables us to answer one of humanity's main problems in the world. We have an answer. And we ought to know how to live in peace with others who are radically and deeply different from us. So here it is. To live up and in, up to and into our unity, I'm going to say we have to do three things from this passage. These are our points this morning. We have to remember something. 
We have to rest in someone, and we have to practice something. Remember something, rest in someone, practice something. So first, we need to remember something. In verse 11 and 12, Paul used that very word, remember. Uh, He used it twice. Uh, So what do we need to remember? We need to remember, Paul is telling us, who we were and who who we now are, okay? So please listen close to me. Because if you miss this point, you're going to have a hard time following what Paul says in these verses. Remembering who we were and remembering who we now are, we're talking about identity. And listen, our doing, all of our doing, our thoughts, our motives, our behaviors, our speech, always flows out of our identity who we understand ourselves to be at any given moment. You and I never speak, we never act, we never think in a vacuum. Look then, in verse 11 and 12, Paul told this group of Gentile Christians to remember who they were. And instead of getting real detailed with everything Paul says there, separated from Christ, alienated, strangers or foreigners, no hope without God. What Paul is saying, if I had to summarize all that, I would say he's saying you were spiritually homeless. Right? You were adrift. You were not belonging. You were cut off. You were disjointed. You were out of place. You were lost. You were forgotten, even abandoned. In the 1970s, uh, Lauren Easley coined a great little phrase to describe the human experience that I think fits Paul's description um, of who we were. He call, Lauren Easley called man the cosmic orphan. He was saying, we're born into this world, all of us, with a sense upon our hearts that we're not at home, that we're lost, that we're orphaned, that we're not belonging. And, and I know we're hitting this real quick, but one scholar writes about this, Paul's reminders of alienation here are so heavy and so numerous. He's talking about a five-fold alienation, all those things we just listed for you. He says, and so dark that we're left gasping for spiritual air. And it's the air that Paul next takes us in verse 13. Because in verse 13, he's calling us to remember who we now are. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off, you who, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near, you've been brought all the way in, you've come home. In Jesus is what he's saying. Paul is saying, you need to get yourself oriented. You need to get your bearings and remember who you were and who you are. Because this is the story, this is the narrative that defines you. This is your identity lost but found in Jesus. And it's when your identity is settled in Christ that all of Paul's application in this passage becomes clear. For the final um, few years of my grandfather's life, uh, he moved in with my parents uh, because he was suffering from terrible dementia. And um, 
Several of you have had uh, that experience with a loved one or, or even experiencing it now. Um, and I don't want to necessarily trigger too much pain in my talking about this, but you know how sad it is to witness this and how helpless you feel when someone you love is this disoriented. I mean, it was so heartbreaking to witness, but I think as a lot of families in that same situation, a lot of times we just had, had to laugh to avoid crying uh, much of the time. I mean, the way he would ask you over and over all these questions, who are you? Who am I? Uh, often multiple times within the same minute. And I think it was these constant questions that were particularly heartbreaking. I mean, because over and over, he wanted to know, what time is it? What day is it? How old am I? Do I live here? Do I have a wife? I mean, it was heartbreaking because I realized he, he was trying to remember. Right? Grasping for even the smallest hook into reality, something to tell him, even if just for a moment, even just for a few seconds, this is who you are. It's heartbreaking, painful, and sad to see the the growing disorientation. Now come back to Ephesians. Why does Paul keep saying, remember? Because he knows you and I are prone to forgetting. He knows we're prone to a spiritual dementia in our lives. That though we've come home in Jesus, though we've been brought near in Jesus, we often lose our bearings. And when we do, we start grasping for any hook to explain to ourselves who we are. Some kind of identity factor that we can grasp onto. Something to tell us who we are. Something to settle us and orient us to reality. A story, a narrative that defines us. All right, so first, I'm going to leave us there. First, Paul says, remember something. Consider your identity. Remember who you were. Remember who you now are in Jesus. Um, let, me just say, let me say one other thing, actually, before I move on to the second point. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus, um, I just want to suggest something to you, Um, and that would be, please don't ignore and push down those feelings of emptiness, that sense of homelessness, that, that feeling of being adrift and a cosmic orphan, that feeling that there must be more, because nothing seems to be able to quench my thirst or satisfy my hunger in this life. You know, I did that for a long time. A lot of people in this room did that for a long time. And you can find a lot of things to numb that emptiness, that exhausting, gnawing, nagging, unsettling emptiness. And I want to encourage you, if you're not a believer, to pay attention to it. Because it means something. It means you were made for home. And where you are right now is not home. So don't push it down. Be courageous enough to press into it. All right, second, let's move on. In verses 14 through 18, Paul tells us to rest in someone. Really, verses 14 through 18, 
or a further description of what Paul said in verse 13. In Christ Jesus, you've been brought near by his blood. But, but to get there, um, let, let me take a moment to kind of guide you into the cultural context here of Paul's writing and talk about this dividing wall of hostility in verse 14. Because for Paul and his readers, that was not a metaphor. That was a real physical literal wall that he had in mind. The Jewish temple was surrounded by these courts which were separated by these really thick walls. And the furthest most court in the temple was the court of Gentiles. It was away from the temple and actually beneath the temple by several flights of stairs. So that if you were a Gentile, you could look up and you could see others approaching the temple, but you couldn't venture in. You couldn't go past that wall. The Jewish historian Josephus, um, he wrote about this wall and how on this wall were posted warnings to Gentiles not to enter beyond this wall. Um, But not until some archaeological finds in 1871 and 1935 did we know what what the wordings on those warnings were. Um, This is their exact warning. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. As John Stott writes, um, that's a bit more extreme than trespassers will be prosecuted. (laughs) Trespassers will be executed. Think with me, the Jewish people had the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, as Paul wrote in verse 15. God had given the Jewish people the temple and all these ceremonial laws, and he had given them these ways that they were to live in the midst of the nations. Why did God give them all these things? So that they would be a light to the nations. So that the nations would be attracted to them and attracted to the one true God. But here's what happened. They took these gifts, these good things, and instead of using them to attract the nations, they used them to distinguish themselves and feel superior to the nations and to look down on the nations. Back in verse 11... Paul wrote the Gentiles were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is the Jewish people. You know why the translators put quotation marks around the uncircumcision? It's because it was a slur, a racial epithet. It was a name-calling. I mean, the hostility, the enmity, the hatred was thick. The Jews hated the Gentiles because they were so beneath them. And the Gentiles hated the Jews because the Jews hated them. And that's the context for Paul's writing. And we need to start transitioning to apply this. So, So let me transition us by asking us this question. How do they, or how do we, how does anyone get to a place where they label individuals or a group of people and treat them as inferior 
even calling them names. Remember what we said just a few minutes ago. We never speak or think or act in a vacuum. It flows out of our understanding of who we are. So listen, what do you do? What do I do when I'm grasping for an identity? We find some good quality about us. Maybe a gift. right? Something we look at ourselves or our group of people and we say, that's admirable. And we use it to form our identity. It's what makes us feel special and unique and important and better than and superior to others. And we use it to tell us who we are. For the Jewish people, it was their nationality, their possession of the law, the temple, the, uh, the ceremonies like circumcision. We may do it differently. But we'll grasp for an identity in almost anything. So give me like 30 seconds and I'm going to try to offend everybody in this room. Okay? While I still have a job. Um, what kind of things... Are we grasping at to tell us who we are? I mean, where you go or went to school, what neighborhood you live in, your work ethic, your social status, your socioeconomic class, your race, your opinions on how to educate your children, what style of worship music you prefer, your political views, how smart you are, how reformed you are, your appearance. Your successes? How open you see yourself to be? I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, to become so very self-righteous about how unself-righteous you think everybody else is. Or how unself-righteous you think you are, rather. I mean, we could go on and on here. We latch on to good things, gifts even for an identity. And when we do, everyone that's not that is inferior to us. They are less than. And you extrapolate that line a little, and you'll see that attitude running through every holocaust and genocide the world has ever seen. We may not say it out loud, but we've thought, they're what's wrong with this country. They're what's wrong with this city. They're what's wrong with the church. So here's the question. How do you and I get free from this need to be grasping for an, our identity, to always be hustling to achieve an identity. We find freedom, Paul is telling us, when we, when we rest in someone else for our identity. We find freedom when we rest in Jesus for our identity. When we rest in what Jesus has accomplished for us in our place. Real quick, years ago, there was this documentary on Scotland, and they were filming this shepherd who was dealing with something similar to mad cow disease, but for sheep, I can't remember what it was. And there was this mother sheep whose little lamb had died because of this disease. And in the same flock, there was another little lamb whose mother had died from this disease. And so it looked as though, oh, this is a perfect match, Right? Mother sheep, little lamb that needs to be nursed and cared for and all that kind of stuff. But every time this orphaned lamb came close to the mother, the mother sheep, 
you, I don't know what they call him, um, she would smell him and know that it wasn't her little lamb, and she would run him off so he couldn't nurse, he couldn't be cared for. So you know what the shepherd did? He skinned the dead lamb and put it onto this, this lamb and fastened it onto this lamb. So that when the orphan lamb next came near to that mother, she smelled her little lamb and welcomed it all the way in so it could be cared for and nursed. It's in Jesus that we come home. It's in Jesus that all our sins are paid for. It's in Jesus that we have been covered and clothed with his righteousness Verse 13, it's in Christ Jesus that we are brought near. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. How did he break down the dividing wall? Verse 14, in his flesh. It was verse 15, in himself that he created one new man. It's through him, verse 18, that we all, Jew and Gentile, near and far, have access in the Spirit to the Father. I've got to get to the last point, but listen, in verse 16... We're told that on the cross, Jesus killed the hostility. The gospel destroys our hostility. Because in the gospel, God tells us who we are. The gospel says that everyone, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you have the law or not, whether you're religious or not, whether you're moral or not, Whether you're near or far, no matter who you are, you are no better than anyone. The Lord of glory had to be stretched out on a cross and die for you, no matter who you are. But at the very same time, the gospel tells you there's nothing you could ever do to improve upon how much God loves you. When God looks at you in Jesus... He sees you covered and clothed in his own son's perfect righteousness. You can't even dream or imagine how much he loves you right now. And it's when you can stop grasping to achieve an identity and simply receive this identity That you're finally able to rest. And as you rest in Jesus, it destroys the hostility in your heart and in mine. All right, last we have to practice something. Um, I'm going to try to be very applicable here. And I'm just going to draw out the application from the metaphors that Paul used at the end of this passage in verses 19 to 22. So there are three metaphors that he throws out there in those verses. That the church is made up of fellow citizens, he sees the church as a household, right? And the church as stones of a temple indwelt by God himself. And every commentator on this passage notes, as one author writes, that each metaphor narrows the circle of intimacy. So fellow fellow citizens are bound by citizenship. And we have a lot in common. We can have a lot in common and live miles and miles apart. 
from one another as fellow citizens. But if you're in the same household, mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter, you're separated by just a few feet. But if you're stones in a building, you're either chiseled to fit together perfectly or you're cemented together so that there's no light that can get through. You're that close. You're stuck together. See, to be a citizen is to be bound and to be connected to a lot of people and to a lot of people who are not like you. People who are made up of different nationalities and different races and people with differing political views and differing financial means and education and so on. And I'm not saying that anyone, I'm not saying that any one church can be completely inclusive, but I am saying that every church has to stretch itself, has to strive to become more inclusive of other races, classes, of people with differing views and differing struggles from our own. And because the church is made up of people, citizens, that means you and I need to stretch to be friends with people who are not like us. I mean, you've heard the announcement the past two weeks that last year we had a crawfish boil and we invited Faith Chapel to come and and worship with us. Um, And they've invited us now to come to this uh, wild game soul food dinner. Um, You know, very different church, as Woody told us this morning, African American, Wesleyan holiness. Um, They came to our crawfish boil. They're our fellow citizens in Jesus. We are bound to them. And in two weeks, on February 23rd, they've invited us to come and be with them. And I really hope that we show up in overwhelming numbers because we have been invited by them. And they're different from us. But we belong to one another in Jesus. We've got to stretch ourselves We've got to practice moving out and toward people not like us. I mean, that's how we live out and live up and into this new humanity of ours that we already have. And you're free to do that. You're free to move out and towards people not like you. When you realize your race, your class, your views, your struggles, whatever, are not your primary identity factors. But rather Jesus is. All right, and the metaphors get more narrow, not just citizens, but living in a household together. I grew up with two sisters and a brother. The single greatest motivating factor for me to graduate high school and go to college was just to get some privacy, Um, honestly. In a home, you do everything together, right? You work and you play together and you talk and you argue together and you share meals and you share stuff and you space and money and all that kind of stuff. And here's what I want to say. If we're a family, then at times it ought to feel like it's infringing upon our privacy. I'm not saying you don't need any boundaries in your life, but don't mishear me. But I am saying there ought to be a cost that you feel emotionally, relationally, bearing one another's burdens, financially, sacrificing for one another, infringing on our time. 
right? Needing to volunteer and work together like a family to pull things off like youth group and ESL classes and Gardeer and all those other things. Are we practicing sharing our lives with one another? If you are, at times it feels like infringement. Here's another thing about families. I I don't know about you, but no one in this world has seen me at my worst like my family. You know, we can show up to work or social functions and we look pretty good and pretty put together. But no, but our family knows what a jerk we can really be. Two very hard words to say that get spoken regularly in any healthy family are I'm sorry. Look, if we aren't close enough and transparent enough with one another to the point that we have to say we're sorry from time to time, then we're not practicing enough intimacy with one another. And by the way, if Jesus is your identity, then you're free to say you're sorry. Because your identity isn't resting on your performance or your goodness. And if Jesus is your identity, you're free to forgive others, your brothers and sisters. Because you're no better than anyone. There's a lot of freedom here. Even more narrow, stones in a temple and dwelt by God. You know how this image works? Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God the Spirit, for God by the Spirit, built together into a dwelling place. The image works by understanding that God doesn't come down and indwell individual privatized stones off by themselves. Right? He comes down and he dwells in stones, plural, that are built together. Look, the Bible knows nothing. The Bible knows nothing about wanting more Jesus but less church. More Jesus but less of his body? More Jesus but less of his bride? The Bible knows nothing about that. They go together and the way to deeper intimacy with Jesus is deeper intimacy with other Christians. But you might say, the church has disappointed me. The church has hurt me. Of course it has. You say, but the church is a mess. Well, of course. It's got me in it, and it's got you in it. But it's Jesus. It is his beautiful mess that he adores. I know it's tempting at times to want to bail on the church. The church is capable of practicing everything we're talking about here. But we rarely execute well on it, if we're honest. And so it's tempting to get cynical about the church and want to bail on the church. But here's the thing. You cannot bail on the church without bailing on Jesus. You can't. I mean, verse 14 and 15 tell us that Jesus in his flesh tore down the dividing wall of hostility. That or so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. To bail on the church is to bail on the very thing Jesus came to die for. 
You can't bail on one without bailing on the other. So how do you engage in this last little thing here? How do you engage, maybe re-engage with this beautiful mess, the church, um, in a way that guards your heart from cynicism and moves you towards a deeper practice of unity? Paul wrote in verse 20 that in the temple there is a stone that is the cornerstone. And that cornerstone, he says, is Jesus. And a cornerstone is foundational. It's the primary load-bearing stone in a building. But even more than that, the cornerstone doesn't just bear weight. It determines every line of the building. Every stone has to be stacked in relation to that cornerstone. In other words, the whole building, Paul's saying, exists in the cornerstone. And he was cast off. And he was abandoned. And he was homeless. And he was rejected. And he was crucified outside of the city to bring us home. To bring us near. To bring us all the way in. I mean, the way to engage and re-engage and make progress, Paul, I think, is saying, is to fix your eyes on the cornerstone and to let that reshape your identity as you remember who you are, as you rest in Jesus, and as you begin to practice this life of unity with one another. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, as we do each week, for your word. We thank you that you have not left us alone, but that you have spoken and that you have declared to us the way of peace through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Father, we pray that you would help us because we need your help. We are prone to forget. We need your help that we would remember who we were and we remember who we are are now. We need your help in order that in the midst of the temptation to grasp for our identity and other things, that we would rest and that we would rest in Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. And Father, we so obviously need your help if we are ever to practice And live out the unity that you say we have in your son. And so we plead with you that you would help us by your spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.